Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thanks for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Rob Snowett checking in with you from the title Potomac Fly Rotters December Beer Tie at Whitlow's on Wilson in Clarendon, Virginia. Tonight we're going to have uh, one of my oldest friends in the fly fishing industry, Bo Beasley. I met him shortly after I started working retail at the Orvis Company store in Tyson's Corner, Virginia in the summer of 1999. Bo is now uh, an author, he is a speaker, and he also puts on the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about some important water rights, what's legal and illegal for anglers to do versus landowners. And we will then go into some other issues uh, with water rights, not specifically the Jackson River, Hazel in Virginia. We'll follow it up with his books and the Fly Fishing Festival. And then we have a special guest that we'll catch up with at the end of the evening. So thank you very much for downloading this podcast. Let's take it away to the beer tie. All right, so today is Monday, the 9th of December. We have Bo Beasley here. We're going to talk about water rights, which has been in a lot of the fly fishing magazines recently. And um, I could sort of give an intro, but I think it's best just to hand it over to Bo and let him talk about water rights. And then we'll also get into 
the books he writes, and the Virginia Fly Fishing Wine Festival he puts on. So, Bo, take it away. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be on your program and speak about this issue. As you know, I've spent a lot of time writing about access and use issues in Virginia, in particular as it applies to crown grants, uh, sometimes called King's Grants, which are land grants originally uh, issued by uh, Monarch of Great Britain. As you well know, Virginia was a, an English colony, and Virginia adopted all of uh, English uh, law when it became a state. And we've had some conflicts in a couple of rivers, namely the Jackson and uh, recently the Hazel River as well, where landowners have asserted crown grant ownership. And basically what that means is, uh, despite the state of Virginia saying that they own the river bottom, these landowners uh, claim that the law passed in 1802 really doesn't apply to them because the 1802 statute says all land not otherwise conveyed by deed or special compact is now the ownership or, or owned by the state. And their contention is that their property was already conveyed uh, through virtue of uh, ownership all the way back to the original land grants, which in the case of the Jackson River, in this latest case in 2010, went back to uh, King George II. So we're talking about really old documents and very old land claims. We've got the most recent incident, which was a, a gentleman fishing. And he, I, I guess you can tell the story better, but I guess he was on the water and the landowner said he was over their property. He couldn't fish there and went into litigation. And you've written a lot of articles following people up in the fly fishing magazines if you want to talk about how that sort of brought the whole situation back into the limelight recently. Sure. Um, a gentleman named Dargan Cogashell was out fly fishing in Allegheny County on the Jackson River below the Gathright Dam. And he was fishing in what the state of Virginia advertised as public water. And he entered the river at an access point owned by the United States Forestry Service. He paddled down a navigable river in a kayak. He possessed a fishing license and a trout stamp and began fishing uh, in the Jackson River. And after fishing there for a few minutes, a riparian landowner came up to him and said that he had to move along, that he was trespassing. And uh, the angler thought, well, how can I be trespassing? I'm in the river. I'm not up on the bank and I have every right to be here. And the landowner insisted that it was private property, that he owned land on both sides. And since his property went to the middle of the river, by virtue of the fact that he owned both sides, the angler was trespassing. The angler stood his ground and said, nope, the state of Virginia says this is public property and I'm going to keep fishing. He eventually went home and this occurred a few more times. He contacted the game department. The game department told him he had every reason uh, to fish there if he wanted to, that the state owned the bottom of the river, and he had every right to fish. And the state even went to the extent of sending a letter to the landowner saying that his posted signs were not valid and that the, the state of Virginia did not recognize his property ownership claim and that in order to have it recognized, he'd have to go to court. Well, <clears throat> he did because the, land, the angler continued to fish there, and eventually the 
landowner brought a trespass action, a civil lawsuit against the angler for trespassing. Now, when people hear that, they immediately want to uh, say that the landowner is uh, a horrible, terrible person and they're just a greedy bunch of landowners uh, trying to hog the river all of themselves. Well, that's one viewpoint. Another viewpoint is uh, the river is owned or that riverbed is owned by this family. They have a deed that precedes uh, or that has a chain of title back to prior to the 1802 law. They are paying uh, real estate taxes or real taxes on the bottom of the river, and they felt like the state uh, had overstepped its bounds by telling people they could fish there. And the long and the short of it is, when the angler was sued, he went to the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries and said, hey, I'm being sued for fishing on public property, uh, and what I was doing was legal, and I was well within the state's rights or, or, or the state laws, and can you help me? And the game department said, well, no, we really can't because we don't have the statutory authority to defend you. Why don't you call the attorney general's office? That's the attorney for the state. So the angler did. He did contact the attorney general's office. And more or less, the attorney general's office said, yes, we are the attorney for the state, but you're not the state. You're a private citizen. And this is a private civil issue between two citizens, and we're not going to get involved. So when all was said and done, the angler and the landowner both spent about $100,000. And when it was all over, they went to court. And I'm kind of giving you the, the 10 cent uh, uh, Perry Mason uh, legal explanation. But in the end, the judge said, landowner, do you claim to own it? Yes, I do. Here's my chain of title going all the way back to the crown grant. The landowner then looked at the angler and said, Mr. Angler, do you claim to own the river bottom? No, I don't. I just came here because I was a guest of the state. Okay? State of Virginia, what is your position? Well, the state of Virginia failed to show up. They were never in court. They never defended their their claim of ownership. So the angler was left there by himself. The judge eventually ruled that the landowner had a better claim of title and therefore awarded him prima facie ownership. Now, that doesn't mean that he owns it outright. It just basically means in legal terms, at first glance, um, he appeared to own it more than the angler. Since the angler is not allowed to come back and the angler represents the rest of the public, now nobody else is allowed there. So there are two sections now, one called the Craft Burr, which is about a quarter of a mile below the dam. That case was litigated in 1996, Craft V. Burr, under a similar situation, and the landowner won. But the state takes the position that each of these crown grants are separate issues, and just because one is, one is litigated in one section of the river, it doesn't have a bearing on different crown grant in a different section of the river, because these grants are often unique. The problem that I have as a sportsman and outdoor writer is not with the landowner. I do not demonize the landowners because they have a position that the angling community may not be particularly happy with. I understand where they're coming from. I also obviously understand where the angler is coming from. My complaint is with the state of Virginia. I have a real problem that the state of Virginia sells a license, provides maps, and then when anglers go out and go and use the license that they were sold, 
are told they're on the hook if they get sued, that the state's not involved. And I just think that's wrong. I think, you know, why are we buying licenses if we don't know where we can use them? And that's part of the problem with these Crown Grants, Rob. They're all over the state. Crown Grants are on the Jackson, the James, the Pamunkey, the New, the Cow Pasture. They're all over the place. So there's no one total listing of all the Crown Grants, so it's not as though we know where they all are. And the problem now is, since the state has made it obvious and painfully clear that it will not defend its property rights, anglers and sportsmen are on their own. Here's something that that might interest your listeners. Legislators and the uninformed are under the impression that this only affects fly anglers and only affects a small section of the Jackson River. Well, I'm doing research right now on two separate cases. One is a Crown Grant claim on the Hazel, where a landowner on the Hazel River is preventing a dam from being removed. He's telling the state that they can't come on his property to remove a low-water dam. It's about 20 feet high. The, the dam owner wants it removed. The county wants it removed. The state wants it removed. But the landowner on the other side is fighting them and contending that no one can come onto his property to help remove the dam. He wants the dam to stay up. Uh, more or less because he doesn't want any more people on the river, and he's had problems with people coming onto his property, and I certainly understand that position. Another case that I'm looking into is uh, involving duck hunters, where duck hunters have been threatened with legal action, same kind of thing. They have a duck blind permit, they have a hunting license, and they're out in a river out in Westmoreland County, and a landowner is threatening to sue the duck hunters for being uh, trespassing, and basically the landowner's contention is the duck blind is touching the bottom of the creek, and therefore they are trespassing. And, of course, the state of Virginia is not going to get involved. So uh, this uh, has not gone to court yet, the one with the duck hunters. And the other case uh, on the Hazel River is still, uh, the Attorney General's office is still doing research on the Crown Grant Uh, But basically, as far as I can tell, the dam removal is kind of at a standstill until, uh, despite the fact they have federal funding to take it down, uh, it's kind of at a standstill until the state determines whether they're going to try to take the dam down uh, or not. So it's it's an issue that affects people all over the state. Incidentally, on the same section of the Hazel River... um, Miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A Commonwealth's attorney there incorrectly validated a Crown Grant without it ever having to go to court, and he summarily shut down one section of the river for five years. So for five years, people couldn't fish, they couldn't swim. They couldn't do anything on this section of the Hazel River uh, because of a misunderstanding about a Crown Grant and Crown Grant uh, ownership. So uh, anglers and sportsmen of every type are being affected by this, and we need to prevail on the state legislature to create some type of mechanism to have these Crown Grants adjudicated one way or another. Delegate Lingenfelter, 
out of Fauquier County has been instrumental in trying to bring this to the forefront, as has Senator Deeds in Allegheny County, has also provided some leadership here. Senator Deeds is a Democrat. Delegate Lingenfelter is a Republican. They see this as a, uh, a issue that sportsmen want to get addressed, and hopefully we're going to have some kind of action one way or another in the next um, next session of the General Assembly. So are these people, the landowners, are they doing this out of spite? Are they just curmudgeons? Are they really worried that there's going to be just beer cans and old bonfires on their property or naked hippies running through? Or are they just saying, you know, we own the land on the river bottom and since we own it, that's that's it. We're done. You people can't come here. What, what's the reasoning? Is there like a common thread that people are, are doing this against anglers, sportsmen, shooters? Well, all of those issues are legitimate. While you and I, Rob, might be very considerate when we're out on the water and not leave any trash, that's not always the case. Uh, I can tell you right now, work that I've done uh, as recently of last week, I was on the Hazel River and there were beer cans and beer bottles all over the place. And I actually saw evidence of what I think is criminal activity where people had dumped uh, two deer carcasses. Now, I thought at first, well, maybe, you know, maybe this this deer got hit by a car, you know, because it was on the side of the road. But then I realized that there were two of them and that these deers have been skinned. So clearly, even if the deer were struck by a car, they're not going to skin them. So somebody harvested these deer, maybe took the hams out of them or the hindquarters or whatever, and then just dumped them on the side of the road. So uh, that's not the, the rule. That's probably the exception to the rule. But there are people that do, you know, trash property. There are people that go down and uh, they're at the river or at rivers uh, for purposes other than fishing. And I'm sure there is some underage drinking and I'm sure there is, uh, you know, other activity that may not be conducive to a family environment. However, if they're in the river and not on the banks of the river, if they're in the river themselves and it's a navigable river in Virginia, it's considered state property. Um, so to go back and answer your question, the landowners do have a legitimate complaint uh, in many of these cases. And yes, we may say, well, this landowner is being a curmudgeon or they're being selfish or they're being you know, hateful or mean. And what I would venture is to say is that um, you know, if you had people camping out in your front yard or you had people camping out in your backyard... You wouldn't be too crazy about that, especially if you ask them to leave and they said, no, I'm not leaving. So there's a serious difference of opinion about where people can be and where they can't. The most important thing to remember is stay off the banks. Stay in the river. If you have a problem with a landowner, you have a confrontation, don't lose your cool. Be polite. And my advice to you is move along and then contact the game department you know, you you cannot be harassed while you're on the river uh, illegally. So if you think you're being harassed or you think someone has threatened you or they have threatened you with bodily harm, then you could certainly contact the local uh, game department or the local authorities there. One last thing, in some cases these landowners are trying to sell property 
that's adjacent to the river. And clearly, if you had property that was adjacent to a river and you were selling that property, it would be worth more if there was private use of the river as opposed to being open to the public, as you can imagine. Uh, the case with the dam uh, being held up on the Hazel River, uh, that's more a case of the landowner just does not want to see the dam to come down um, and doesn't want you know any more users on the river than there are currently. So... Um, it's just a, a difference of opinion. I'm sure there are plenty of anglers and kayakers that think, you know, I don't understand why this is going on. I just want to have a good time and go down the river. Uh, but when these kind of issues come up, we do need to have some kind of clarity. And since these crown grants are on many, many of Virginia's rivers, the state legislature needs to step in to help provide some clarity so landowners do not have to sue sportsmen to determine their property rights. That's what we have right now. Sportsmen, hunters, fishermen, kayakers, we're basically the canary in the coal mine, and we're the ones uh, being sued and taken to court because the state refuses to provide some kind of clarity or to have some other kind of options to have these uh, issues dealt with in a more constructive way. When did this become sort of your thing to deal with, that you decided you're going to pick it up and go with it, write the articles, do the research, and sort of be the, the forefront of protecting our rights as anglers and hunters? Well, I, I would say that, uh, you know, this really became evident to me. I knew a little bit about Kraft Burr. I knew there was a crown grant on the Jackson. But like most people, I knew almost nothing about it. Uh, but when Dargan Cargashell contacted me and asked me to help him, that was the angler involved in the case, uh, I took a much better interest because, or much larger interest because I couldn't understand how somebody could legitimately be sued for trespassing on what was advertised as public property. Um, after covering the issue about a year, the landowners contacted me and said that they wanted to give me their side of the story. They thought I had been impartial. They felt like many of the people in the media had demonized them and not bothered to get their side of the story. So once I actually went to the landowner's house, both of them, one the developer and one the the person that that purchased the home that filed the, the suit, and spoke to them both. They're very nice people. They're very reasonable people. Uh, they're not evil boogaboo men. Uh, they just have a different viewpoint, and they're trying to protect their interest. Um, and I decided, you know, this is a really complicated issue, and I felt like the state had uh, let both parties down. They'd let down the sportsmen, and they'd let down the landowners, and we needed to provide some clarity. You know, Virginia's a billion-dollar business in this state, and about 20,000 jobs are tied up in the fishing community in Virginia. We're ranked number 10 as fishing destinations, so we have a vested interest in fixing this because when an angler goes to the Jackson River, when an angler goes to the Hazel River, or a kayaker goes fishing or, or goes to, to the new, you know, they're buying gas, they're staying in hotels, they're hiring guides, they're eating in restaurants, they're buying gear. So there's a lot of commerce involved, and we need to, to try to fix this. As I started to write about the Jackson, I started to get inquiries from other states. People in Tennessee were contacting me. People in North Carolina were contacting me. People from Pennsylvania all asking for uh, 
insight onto their particular issues. And now I actually teach a, a class that lasts a little more than an hour called Who Owns the River? And we go over uh, river law and the unique riparian rights that are in each state. There are no uniformed river laws. Each of the 50 states has their own neat, their own unique view of river bottom ownership and usage. Now, there are plenty of states that are similar, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Maryland all have kind of the same view of non-navigable rivers, uh, but other states have a much more liberal view of where you can go, like Missouri probably has one of the most progressive outlooks. Um, in Missouri, pretty much as long as your feet wet, you can just about go anywhere you want. So, And we're seeing fights in the court right now, uh, the Utah Stream Access Law, on the Provo River, we're seeing litigation on the Ruby River about Montana. In North Carolina right now, the state of North Carolina is suing Alcoa over their uh, position about the state of North Carolina claiming to own the river bottom and uh, wanting Alcoa uh, not to have their dam license uh, renewed. Uh, so it's not just anglers and landowners like in that case, it's a, an individual company in a state. But the issue of who can use the river and whether they can touch bottom or not, uh, that battle is raging all over the country. Just most people don't know about it because it's pretty unique, and they generally only know about their own state. Um, so Virginia is the only state I'm aware of that has the view that it does about Crown Grant ownership. In the state, the only other case I know of was a famous case, uh, the Douglas and Salmon Run section of uh, New York. And um, I spoke to that landowner, too, and he also won his case. So it's not uh, not an oddball thing to have river issues, uh, but it, it is out of the ordinary. Most anglers don't think about it until they go somewhere and see a no trespassing sign on a place they thought they could go, and then they get curious. I've actually had a, a shotgun pulled on me once. The old uh, Rosebud Pool on Falling Springs Branch in Pennsylvania, apparently it was public. There was a parking spot there, and then the next year it was private. And we came in from the top end of the stream, and apparently it was marked on the other side and this guy came out with a shotgun and was like you leave now or you get shot and we were like okay we're out of here so it's it, there was the guy killed over the summer i forget where but uh yeah he went to take a leak on the shoreline got out of his boat and the landowner met him and blew a shotgun shell right into his chest well those cases are pretty rare first of all my advice to you is if you ever get approached by somebody who has a firearm just get out of the river um, and, and take it up with local law enforcement. It's against the law for them to point a gun at you in a threatening manner. That's brandishing a firearm. However, it's not illegal for a landowner to possess a firearm on his own property. People do have a Second Amendment right to own firearms, and sometimes they approach people on the river. They don't know who they are, and they want to feel safe. So don't assume that somebody who walks up to you carrying a firearm is up to no good, uh, but... Clearly, if they point the gun at you, uh, that's probably not legal in any state that I'm aware of. As far as the angler, uh, excuse me, the, the person that was shot recently, I think that was 
I can't remember what state it was off the top of my head, but in that case, the landowner became highly agitated, and it wasn't a simple matter of he just walked up and shot the guy. There was a lot of alcohol involved, several people involved, people lost their tempers, and then regrettably, one of the people on the river uh, was shot to death. And it did start out by the guy getting out of the uh, kayak, excuse me, out of the raft to use the bathroom. So we all need to be responsible, to be around, you know, be aware of our surroundings, and conduct ourselves in a professional manner all the time. But if you ever see anybody with a firearm, my advice is you'd get out of the river. Nothing says you can't take off your cell phone and take a picture so you can identify them later. But in the case that you mentioned, it was public property. Then it became private and you accidentally trespassed. And he probably, you're probably the 30th person he'd seen that year. So he lost his temper. So that's why you need to constantly be aware that you are in fact fishing on public property. And one of the best ways to do that is to check with your uh, local game warden or conservation police officer because they're usually up on the trouble points of the river. All right, we're going to pause real quick. we got to go to the other room. They're closing this room down. All right, so we're now in the pool room at Whitlow's on Wilson, and let's use that as a transition. Let's talk about Bo being the author of the No Nonsense Guides for Fly Fishing Virginia. Thank you, Rob. I was very happy to, um, to write the No Nonsense Guide to Fly Fishing Virginia. It's a pretty straightforward book. It covers 30 locations in Virginia, warm water, cold water, and salt water. So it does everything from the uh, Chesapeake Bay Islands to the trout waters in the Shenandoah National Park, great smallmouth waters like the James, and even shad fishing on the Rappahannock. So it's a little bit of everything. It comes with uh, full-color maps, and there's five pages of local patterns in the front of the book, so you can see what patterns I recommend. recommends places to stay and guides and has listings for the local fly shops. <clears throat> About three years later, I came out with Fly Fishing the Mid-Atlantic, which is a similar format. It's also full-color, but it does 45 locations, again, warm water, cold water, and salt water, and it covers selected rivers in Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and the great state of North Carolina. And currently, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm very excited to be working on a book uh, about an organization that I know you feel very strongly about, Project Healing Waters. This is a group that started uh, in Maryland by a retired Navy captain. He saw veterans while he was recuperating at Bethesda Naval Hospital. He said, look, I, I need to take these guys out and get them out on the water. I think if they got away from the hospital and did a little fly fishing, it would improve their outlook. And he did. And it has just been a magnificent organization or magnificent growth. They're uh, in about 46 states now. Matter of fact, I just came back from uh, West Virginia. I was uh, at Harmon's North Fork Cabins uh, in, uh, in Cabins, West Virginia, with two programs, one from Fort Belvoir headed up by Bob Gardner, and the other program in Quantico, headed up by Marty Larksburg. And basically, Project Healing Waters, their motto is healing those who serve. And they take soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guard people who maybe have come back from overseas fighting Afghanistan or Iraq or previous conflicts. They have veterans that served in Vietnam and in Korea, and they introduce them to the joys of fly fishing. 
It helps them with their therapy. You can imagine if you come back from Afghanistan or come back from Iraq and you're missing an arm or a leg, you have a huge adjustment period. And while uh, teaching somebody to fly fish certainly doesn't replace their arm or their leg or maybe, quite frankly, they're scarred somewhere that you can't see, getting them out on the water, teaching them how to fly fish and tie flies restores a sense of calm to these guys and they have another sense of belonging. It's great to watch these men and women who have served so well and so long and given up so much to provide us the opportunity to live in the liberty and the freedom that we have here. We owe it to these young men and women that have served in the armed forces over the years. And they get involved in the program. Often they're taken out to different locations, and they're given all the gear they need. The organization doesn't ask them to pay for anything. Uh, They provide everything. And they take them out, and they just have a great time connecting with the outdoors. And I'm excited to be doing this book with Project Healing Waters, collaborating on it. Hopefully it'll be out in the spring of 2015. I'm very excited about it. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. So we've already established that you wear many hats from, you didn't mention you're a paramedic, author, not just author in books, but you follow up on all the water rights. Uh, you also put on the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, which is now in its 14th year so uh let's talk about that i remember the maybe the first time i went was at the annadale campus of northern virginia community college was that just a fly fishing festival maybe well that that was uh my very first show i did two years at the northern virginia community college that was called the old dominion fly fishing show i sold that i did it two years at the community college and then two years in chantilly Then I took a couple of years off, and then I was approached by Waynesboro Downtown Development Incorporated, Incorporated, which is a a nonprofit group that promotes businesses in Waynesboro. They hired me to come down and lecture at their fly fishing event. Then as uh, time went on, I got more and more involved, and now I work as their director of sponsorship and program development. But you're right, Rob, my full-time job, I work as a captain on Engine 27, on B-Shift for Fairfax County, where I have served for a little more than 29 years. And I work with some of the best men and women in the world with just a wonderful, wonderful fire department uh, that really cares about its people. And I got involved in fly fishing because I ran a rescue call at Burke Lake when I was a a medic sergeant. I was running uh, Medic 32, and I took in Bob Guess, who uh, was the namesake of Mr. Bob's Lucky Day Lures, and he uh, offered to take me fly fishing, and, and I'd never done that before. So I thought, well, what the heck? So I, he gave me his phone number, and I called him a couple of days later, and I went out and I caught my first bluegill on a fly rod in Burke Lake, and it just, it quite frankly changed my life. Fly fishing kind of helps me unwind and relax, and I, you know, I have a pretty short attention span, uh, but fly fishing allows me to concentrate on casting, on mending line, on thinking where the fish should be, where should I be wading, how can I get the kind of drift I'm looking for. So fly fishing is something that's been a, a part of my life for more than 20 years, and it, it excites me to involve other people, which is why I like uh, being involved with the Virginia Fly Fishing Festival so much. It's held each year on the banks of the South River, 
It will be held this year, April 12th and April 13th from 9 to 5, 2014, in Waynesboro on the South River. And men and women come from all over the country to learn how to fly fish. And we have about six or seven wineries there. So people pay 20 bucks to get in. They take all the classes and lectures they want. And then they also uh, enjoy the wine tasting. And it's a great thing. We have uh, a lot of support from major sponsors like Temple Fork Outfitters, Orvis, Harmon's North Fork Cabins. And we're, we're excited to be able to partner with these folks uh, and enjoy uh, fly fishing and, and introduce it to other people, whether it's learning how to spay cash from somebody like Dan DeValla or uh, they're learning how to tie flies uh, or learning different nymphing techniques. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a little bit of everything, and it's open to every level of uh, expertise from the experts like Lefty Cray, who is uh, the most famous fly fisherman in the world and one of our instructors, to the average layman who knows absolutely nothing about fly fishing and wants to learn. So it's a, it's a pretty unique opportunity for people to get outside and learn about fly fishing uh, in a non-threatening environment. And it's a lot of fun. And, and I get a thrill out of watching people come and take a beginner's outfit and get excited about the sport. And then they get involved and they get their kids involved. It's just a great family activity. And as you well know, your, your addiction to fly tying and fly fishing has progressed over the years. It's, it's fun to see other people get involved in the sport. And I'm just happy to, to be there and to help run the program. And I would just invite all your listeners to come out this April to the Virginia Fly Fishing Festival. They can get information about the schedule of events and all the times and that sort of thing by going to www.vaflyfishingfestival.org. So you mentioned Bob's Lucky Day Poppers. There might be one client a year that I may let throw one of those. I've got like 15 or 20 left, and those are in like the back of my closet for special occasions. They were the best die-injected rubber poppers and sliders ever do you know i mean do you know why he didn't ever he didn't get we sold him in orvis but we never got like picked up nationally i guess he was a local guy they're the the best poppers ever well thank you um and i've got a couple of bodies left that i'll be glad to give you so you can you can tie them up they were closed cell foam made with an injected dye and they were just practically indestructible and uh, regrettably, Mr. Mr. Bob passed, and the company went out of business, so I would hold on to those poppers if I were you. I have some of the originals, which were actually hard cork. That's how they started out, and then it progressed into closed cell foam. It's kind of ironic. I've been the, I had the pleasure of being close personal friends with the two best popping bug manufacturers in the modern era, Bob Guess and Walt Carey, and ironically, they were both in the Navy. So here's two guys, both of which have spent some time in the Navy. Bob only spent a few months because they dropped the bomb in Hiroshima and the war was over. Walt Carey, on the other hand, served for 28 years and retired as a master chief and finished off his service in the forest hall. And he just has probably the best popping bugs ever made. And he's still making them right now. 
and it's kind of amazing. I don't know how it is that I managed to meet both of those guys and be good friends with them and, and them have both made Poppin' Bucks for nearly 50 years. Uh, I, I love Poppin' Bucks. It's probably my favorite thing to do is to fish for poppers or fish with poppers in the summer for a smallmouth and big bluegill, uh, either in a farm pond or on some river like the James or the the Shenandoah. It's a lot of fun. But I do have a couple of those bodies left, and I'll be glad to share them with you. The fish would rip the legs off, the tails, the eyes. You just get this, like, little, like, gumdrop nub of a body left. And if you do want to pick up some of Walt's poppers, Richie's got them down at Urban Angler in Old Town, Alexandria. Anything else you want to chime in about before we wrap this up? If you guys don't know, it's 10.50 on a Monday it was a ice storm yesterday, snow tomorrow. This is my first day off the couch in five days because I threw my back out. So Bo and I are both kind of dragging right now. Well, I would just say thank you, Rob, for having me. And you mentioned Urban Angler, which is a, a great fly shop in uh, Old Town, Alexandria. And I would encourage you to uh, to support your local fly shops, whether it's Urban Angler in Old Town, Alexandria, or the Orvis store here in Arlington, or the, the new Orvis store out in Leesburg. You know, I think of uh, the guys out at uh, South River Fly Shop in Waynesboro, the Mossy Creek boys out in Harrisonburg. There are not a whole lot of fly shops out there, and we need, as anglers, to support the independent stores. I know it's easy to go out on the Internet and get something cut rate, but I would just remind you that if you uh, go get a cut rate product over the Internet, it's great to save money, but then you're going to have to have somebody tell you how to use it or give you some good information on where to fish that fly or where to use that rod and there's nothing any better than the local fly shop so whatever you do support your local fly shops because they're the backbone of the sport if you have any more questions about my books you can drop me an email or go to my website which is www.bobeasley which is my name b-e-a-u B-E-A-S-L-E-Y, BoBeasley.com, and shoot me an email. And if you have any questions about Crown Grant ownership or you have any, uh, if you're a listener from another state and you have a question about access and use in your state, please feel free to reach out to me and I'll do my very best to look into it and get you an answer. Fantastic, Bo. All right, well, uh, if we don't see you soon, we'll see you at Somerset again. All right, thank you so much, Rob. And thank you for having me here and really enjoyed it. I look forward to speaking with you again sometime. All right, so we have a special guest at the end of the beer tie here. He just flew in from Ireland. Boy, are his arms tired. Who do we have as our mystery guest today? Oh, hey. All right, we got Paul. We're checking in from uh, his trip to Ireland. He caught a a pike recently. That was pretty freaking huge. He's been drinking uh, some nice Guinness, and he's... Right, not here. You don't touch the stuff here anymore. It's swill. And then you're out here to do some lobbying. So uh, what have you been doing since we last spoke? So um, when I last spoke with you, we discussed the fact that there was really nice urban trout fishing in Ireland, and that that was like a really neat thing, and they're all wild native fish. Uh, But what I found out since we last spoke is that Ireland may be the best hidden gem in the fly fishing world. in a week, if you come to Ireland, if you come the right time of the year, you have a legitimate shot at catching, in a week, a 20-pound pike on the fly, topwater or subsurface. I mean, I literally caught an 8-pound pike, and the guy that I was fishing with looked at me and goes, oh, it's a small one. And I looked at him like, are you, are you crazy? But 
I'd say like Scooby Doo. Yeah. So you can catch twenty pound pike. You can catch twenty pound Atlantic salmon. Uh, you can catch. 20-pound, 15-pound sea bass there, which are essentially like striped bass. You surf cast for them. And also 10-pound brown trout on dry flies in a week. Uh, All way cheaper than anywhere else in Europe. So much more accessible than Sweden, Scotland, all that stuff. I mean, you can literally do that for the cost minus flight. You can fish licenses, hotels, accommodations for the cost of one day fishing the Tweed in Scotland, which is 900 pounds. Is this the beer goggles you're, you're talking? No, this is reality, and it's actually something that I'm really excited about because my first couple months were a little rough. It took me a little while to find my ways. I fished three days from arriving on September twenty September second to November twenty fifth. I fished three to- uh, no excuse me four days in Ireland, and having come from spending six months fly fishing, that was a pretty brutal transition. But I literally am so excited to go back and be able now that I've like figured out how to go, like where to go and who to go with. Um, I will be catching some monster native wild fish. It's going to be awesome. What brings you back to this side of town? I was on winter break, and I had the fortune to come back, and uh, I'm going to be, I'm in D.C. to lobby. Uh, there's this, uh, we talked about it actually on the last podcast, I think there's a mine that's being proposed in Alaska uh, called the Chewitna Mine. It's a coal strip mine that would be the first coal strip mine to mine directly through a salmon stream. It's it's horrible within itself, and it's even worse when you consider the fact that it is like the first domino in a whole series of coal strip mines that will absolutely gut one of the last pristine wild salmon resources in the world. Um, when I was there in July, the guy that we were fishing with, he's a commercial fisherman. He caught all five species of salmon in one day, all five Pacific species. And this place is about to potentially be destroyed by this coal strip mine for coal that's going to go to these Asian countries because there's no market for it here in the U.S. because it's the lowest grade coal. It'll be the first mine to mine directly through a salmon stream. And there have been sort of economic studies that have been done that look at the whole continuum holistically, like what the value of this. And it's a six to one cost to benefit analysis on the mine like the the watershed is so much more productive and it has the potential to be an incredible resource for commercial fishing recreational fishing and all other types i mean there's great bird hunting and there's tons of stuff there in this region and it's all potentially going down the drain for this coal strip mine so i'm here in dc to sort of raise the awareness about this it's something that a lot of people don't know about it's something that i didn't even know about before i went to alaska and i went there and i saw this place and it's absolutely incredible and i'm hoping to help raise the profile of this issue and get a lot of organizations that have been really involved in pebble and other alaska fights to also get involved in helping to block this mine fantastic i just don't get how some people can sacrifice the environment it's like yeah it boggles my mind i can't fathom how someone would choose cheap crappy energy and destruction over what's there and what's worth more yeah, I mean, it doesn't make economic sense. It doesn't make environmental sense. The people in Alaska, like, when you pull them about it, are, like, wildly opposed to this mine. And so it's really just a byproduct of, you know, this sort of economic sense that it makes for an individual company and a, and a 
government system, frankly, that's set up to sort of silence the voices of the people to, in order to sort of benefit some of these companies. And, and this isn't a place that's like wildly opposed to energy production. They already have oil and natural gas production there, and the people really support it, and it's something that's, you know, the, the people within the Chuitna watershed, they've been good partners, and they've, you know, helped raise revenue for decades, but this is something that they're entirely opposed to because it will literally, in the first phase alone, will dig up and destroy 11 miles of salmon stream that was or sort of considered by the Alaska Department of Wildlife and Game to be critically significant water. It's critical habitat is, I think, the actual definition that it has. So it's a really unfortunate thing, and hopefully it'll be something that we can stop, and it's hopefully something that people will get involved in and start really being aware of. Pebble isn't the only mine issue in Alaska that people need to be concerned about. So hopefully the Chuitna can can be something that people also get behind and, and really oppose as well and fight against. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad someone's doing some hard work out there. And I was going to make a joke about you polling Alaskan women, but I didn't think that would be appropriate since we're on a serious subject. No, I'm much more involved in the Canadian women as we discussed before. So I'm just too tired right now. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. Uh, that's the podcast. Next up, we should have uh, analogies in fly fishing for casting. All right, I got to go home because we're going to get a four-inch blizzard tomorrow, and, and I got to batten down the hatches. All right, Jason, thanks for cleaning this up. Jason, take it away. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.